On February 12, 1835, Juan José Compa, the literate, intelligent leader of the so-called Janeros Apaches, rode into Santa Rita de Cobre, roughly 15 miles east of modern Silver City, New Mexico. With him were the leaders of other Apache groups who had come to treat with Colonel Cayetano Justiniani of the state of Chihuahua about a possible peace. A tentative peace was hashed out, with the Apaches even agreeing to help in battles against the Comanches. Justiniani apparently had an understanding of both his foes and reality, going so far as to drop an article from the treaty about returning livestock stolen from raids because, quote, in order to compel its return, it would take a force of 800 men well-mounted and provisioned for four months, end quote. During the talks, Compa would not speak as to whether any other Apache captains who were not present would accept this peace or not. Again, Justiniani recognized reality and cautioned his superiors that the treaty would not be complete because of the absence of these 12 other leaders. However, it would not be the other Apaches not accepting that Justiniani should have been worried about. You see, the colonel sent news of the treaty over to the military commander of Sonora, José María Elias González. Elias González and the other leaders in Sonora scoffed at this treaty, noting, with something of a point, that the Apaches had promised peace before, but, quote, their request have had no basis in a true desire for peace, but only to lull us into thinking that the end of the war has come, end quote. Sonora rejected the treaty, leading the way for a fractured peace that would ultimately hurt all sides involved. And those in Arizona, still clinging tightly to that one rock, watched as the floodwaters got that much higher. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 18, Uncompromising Warfare. 1835 would turn out not to be a good year. Of course, it's not like the last few years have been happy, fun times either, but things really start hitting the fan now. The first major problem to creep up did not involve the Apaches at all, but rather the Tejono Odom. In February 1835, so while Justiniani was talking with the Janeros Apaches in New Mexico, the Tejono Odom living along the watersheds of the Magdalena and Alter Rivers sent a complaint to those managing the former Franciscan missions. Mexican nationals had been steadily creeping upon the Odom lands for years and were cutting into their share of water. This was followed up closely by a group of Odom stealing horses from an altar man in retaliation for the murder of three of their own. The men in altar formed a posse to find the stolen animals, but turned back when they were convinced that the Odom were A, more numerous, and B, hostile enough to kill them all. Finally, in June 1835, the Tejono Odom also began lodging complaints against the Apaches Mansos of Tucson, claiming they were stealing over to Odom territory and causing damage. Jose Maria Elias Gonzalez, the military commander of Sonora, wanted to avoid a fight between the Odom and the Apaches at all costs. 
His solution was to create a new Apache settlement to give some distance between the two sides. The Apaches originally wanted to settle at El Pueblito outside of Tucson, but as the Akamel Odom still called it home, that was impossible. As a fallback, they picked Sonoida, which was in an abandoned Odom village that was part of a land grant a decade earlier. The only problem is that no one was familiar with the site or its current owner. Eventually, they were able to track him down and offered to pay 600 pesos, which is the price that he had bought it at. But apparently, for whatever reason, this deal did not go through, and nothing was ever done to move the Apaches there. Though this seems like a few small items, the complaints of the Odom people will grow into something much, much bigger in coming years. But if you have noticed one thing about the history of the Pimaria Alta during our short time together, I hope that it's that usually it's some far distant event, the dam bursting way upstream, that brings change and instability. Raiding Apaches, scant supplies, and excessive heat are just facts of life that people can learn to deal with. But when something cataclysmic happens that sends shockwaves throughout all of Mexico, that's what tends to upend the carefully crafted house of cards. Which brings us again to Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. Santa Ana, as you might recall, helped unseat the Mexican president in 1833. But after that, citing ill health, he actually semi-retired to one of his villas and left his vice president, Valentin Gomez Ferrias, in charge. In reality, Santa Ana was playing a long game. Ferrias, you see, was an outspoken liberal. So Santa Ana let him do his best to implement all the liberal policies he wanted. If they worked out, great. Santa Ana could take credit for having the foresight to entrust the country to such a man. But if the other thing happened, you know, if Ferris's reforms were used to attack the power of the conservative elite, the Catholic Church, and the military, and in the process make him deeply unpopular, Santa Ana could reasonably claim distance from that. After all, he was recovering from, insert element of your choice here, far from Mexico City. Given everything we've talked about when it comes to Mexican politics, you probably will not be surprised when I say history decided to go with option B on this one. So, in 1834, a now hale and hearty Santa Ana came into the capital and declared that he was no supporter of these dastardly liberal reforms. This also meant Farias had to go. The former vice president was pressured into exile. Santa Ana had, in fact, toppled his own government. With this as a backdrop, a new Mexican Congress declared a mandate to write a new constitution in May 1835. We briefly talked about this constitution in episode 15, where I noted it was either called the Seven Laws or the Seven Plagues, depending on your political inclinations. This document increased the president's term of office to eight years, abolished the office of vice president, instituted new literacy and property requirements for citizenship and holding public office, as well as set new age limits before a man could be elected to various positions. It stipulated that to run for president, for example, a man had to have an income of above 4,000 pesos a year, you know, just to keep the riffraff out. But the one other thing this constitution did, 
and which will bring this around to the P. Maria Alta in a moment, it eliminated the Mexican states. That's right. In a move showing Santa Ana's so recently found conservative centralist leanings, he set about dismantling Mexico's federalist structure. Now, of course, it's not like he could snap his fingers and suddenly Sonora wouldn't exist anymore. But what the Constitution did was demote everything from a state to a department, overseen by a governor who was now appointed by the central government. State legislatures were now a thing of the past as local autonomy was stripped away by Santa Ana's regime. This, right here, is that dam bursting. And the first place the flash flood of chaos hit was somewhere that you might have heard of. Texas. Yep, as anyone who knows anything about history might have realized, we are at the point where all the American settlers in Texas decided they were kind of sick and tired of Mexico. Now, the Texans had a litany of reasons for wanting to break away. They wanted to own slaves, whereas Mexico said no. They wanted to be separated from the neighboring state of Coahuila, whereas Mexico said no. They wanted an end to high tariffs, whereas Mexico said no. They wanted to overturn an 1830 ban on allowing more Norte Americanos to settle there, whereas Mexico said no. Many actually openly wished to be annexed by the United States, whereas Mexico definitely said no. There was nothing ethnically, economically, religiously, or politically connecting the thousands of former U.S. citizens living inside of Texas, many of whom were illegal squatters, to Mexico. So when the Congress declared in late 1835 that states were no longer a thing, the Texans decided they no longer wanted to be part of this unstable country. The irony to all this is that one of the arguments in Mexico City for strengthening central control and reigning in state autonomy was to keep Texas from getting any independent ideas. I guess Princess Leia really was right. The more you tighten your grip, the more star systems, or outlying frontier states as the case may be, slip through your fingers. Up in Sonora, the legislature was dissolved and a ruling junta was put into its place with the requisite member of the Elias Gonzalez family, of course. Governor Manuel Escalante y Arvizu was allowed to temporarily keep his seat, though he now had to appeal to the federal government in order to campaign against the Apaches. And, of course, that same federal government was a little preoccupied with that whole Texas problem. Speaking of, we might as well round out this phase of Santa Ana's career, as it will have a direct bearing on the coming conflict with the U.S., on February 23, 1836, an army of some 2,500 Mexican soldiers made it to San Antonio, where they found roughly 150 people holed up in the old mission Presidio. After bombarding it with artillery for 12 days, Santa Ana announced an assault. The numbers were not in favor of the Texans, and you can imagine what happened to all those people defending this unimportant, obscure mission Presidio called, uh, wait a second, let me check my notes, the Alamo. Two weeks later, the leader of a similar group of men who were defending the Presidio at Goliad saw their position was hopeless. He turned his men over to the Mexican commander, none other than José Cosme de Urrea, who had been born and raised at Tucson. Urrea had promised the men clemency, 
But when he sent word to Santa Ana about this, the president came back with a message that all prisoners were to be executed. All of this, the Alamo and now these executions, really started being played up in the U.S. press as an example of the cruelty and tyranny that the noble Texans suffered under Mexican rule. However, seeing as Santa Ana doesn't read American newspapers, he's still feeling pretty good about himself and the war. If you'll pardon the second Star Wars reference in as many minutes, the president didn't follow Han Solo's advice about not getting cocky. Feeling that there was only some minor mopping up left to do, Santa Ana and his men walked into an ambush at the San Jacinto River on April 21st. Texan forces under Sam Houston killed or captured virtually all of the 1,300 Mexican troops. Santa Ana fled, but was captured two days later on April 23, 1836. In a meeting with Houston, the Mexican president was forced to sign two humiliating treaties. The first, public treaty, said the war was over. Mexican forces would leave Texas without harming any property, and that Mexico would not make war on Texas again. The second secret treaty let Santa Ana go home, but only if he promised to see to it that Mexico officially recognized the independence of Texas. This treaty would also sow the seeds of the coming U.S.-Mexican War. In it, Texans claimed everything up to the Rio Grande. This was, in the words of historian Timothy J. Henderson, quote, nothing less than an audacious land grab, end quote. The boundary of Texas had always been understood to be at the Nueces River further east. It didn't matter that the space between the two is described by Henderson as, quote, an arid, nearly worthless, impoverished, sparsely inhabited tract of land, end quote. The argument over where Texas officially ended is going to form a major part of the causes belli when the war breaks out just a decade later. But enough foreshadowing. We have things to do back in future Arizona. On March 5th, 1836, so while Santa Ana is busy assaulting the Alamo, a group of Pinal Apaches rode up to Tucson. They were part of a peace delegation sent to work out a treaty with the Presidio. It seems the Pinals were receiving whatever counted as the full brunt of Mexican wrath following the revolt by the Apaches at Janos. A deal was worked out where the Apaches would settle at the junction of Arapapai Creek and the San Pedro River. However, they could not come to Tucson without the express permission of the commander. The only exception being that every two weeks they had to inform the Presidio about what was happening in their settlement, especially anything that would indicate upcoming attacks by other Apache bands. When this treaty first proved its worth in July 1836, it had nothing to do with those other Apache bands. Instead, messengers from the Pinals informed Tucson that they had come across something unexpected. A group of some 40 Norte Americanos farming along the Gila River. This group had set up a farm, planted corn, and then left. They returned in the fall to harvest their crop before permanently abandoning the site in November 1836. Quite honestly, I have no idea who they were, and officials in Tucson seemed strangely unconcerned. The commander of Tucson, Lieutenant Colonel José María Martínez, didn't even bother to issue a full report on it until the next year, and then only after rumors of Norte Americanos had reached the ears of the governor and he came looking for answers. 
The Pinal Treaty would prove its worth again in January 1837 when they sent word to Martinez that the Hanos Apaches were up to no good. The Hanos were still seeking revenge for the death of their leader, Tutuje, who you might recall from last week was killed as part of the lackluster Mexican offensive in 1834. In retaliation, they were now planning the assassination of Sonoran military commander Colonel Jose Maria Alias Gonzalez. They didn't want to stop there, however, and the plan was to kill the commanders of the Fronteras and Santa Cruz Presidios. The final coup de grace was supposed to be the extermination of the Apache Mansos near Tucson. This news naturally set off alarm bells up and down Sonora. Even worse, they felt they couldn't count on any help from the neighboring Chihuahuans, you know, where the Hanos Apaches had come from, because local leaders there seemed more inclined to make treaties than to wage war. Now, this grand assassination plot will turn out to be nothing, but it still left Sonorans on edge. In September 1837, the members of Sonoran's ruling junta, because remember, state legislatures are now gone, wrote to the new president in Mexico City, Anastasio Bustamante, to be allowed to direct their own internal affairs. Chiefly, they wanted control over the district's revenue to fund expeditions against the Apaches. They even went so far as to not send taxes to Mexico City in order to have some money to spend on defense. While waiting for a reply, they turned to Escalante, now the former governor of Sonora, to lead a new campaign. Escalante had lost his power when Santa Ana waved his hand and made the states vanish, but was always ready to jump back into action if called for. However, before he could get going, word reached them that Bustamante and the Poder Conservador, basically a five-man clique who helped run Mexico, had decided to appoint a new governor for the area. Their choice was Manuel Maria Gandara. You might remember him from our last episode, where he was proclaimed governor by that unrecognized faction that had tried to move the capital from Arispe to Hermosillo, but eventually backed down before touching off a civil war. The son of a peninsular-born Spaniard forced to leave Sonora in 1828, Gandra had strong ties to commercial interest in Guaymas and Hermosillo. Along with Gandra, Bustamante and the Poder Conservador also appointed José Cosme de Urrea as the military commander of Sonora. Urrea, born at Tucson and connected to the old aristocracy in the area, was seen as a legitimate hero from the conflict in Texas. I'm setting all this up because these two, Gandra and Urrea, will become bitter rivals and ended up duking it out for control of Sonora. The problem was one of ideologies. Gandra was viewed as a puppet of the new centralist Mexico, while native son Urea was quite open about his desire to restore a federalist government with local state autonomy. FYI, I'm going to be using the terms centralist and federalist quite frequently going forward. In this context, centralist means favoring a strong national government, while federalist means favoring giving autonomy to the various states. In fact, Urea wrote a proclamation calling upon President Bustamante to convene a Congress to revive and reform the Constitution of 1824. He also called upon the states to reform and organize provisional governments. 
Not surprising, when Sonora did just that, they elected Urea governor. Gandara is not going to take this well, and actually resigned, but we'll get back to him in a moment. Urea's proclamation was virtually an act of rebellion against the government in Mexico City. Historian David J. Weber says this move may have been more out of self-interest than genuine ideals about the best form of government. Urea was eyeing the governorship, and when Bustamante appointed Gandra instead, he found a hot-button issue he could exploit to get him there. However, historian James Officer, who admits that Urea aspired to be governor, believes the Federalist sympathies were genuine and what the war hero saw as the best course forward for Mexico. Either way, just to show that he was all in, in early 1838, Urea decided to carry his revolt to more of Mexico and left Sonora again in the hands of Escalante and José María Elias González. Unfortunately, Federalist sympathies were not as strong in other states, and by the summer of 1838, he had been driven back to Sonora. There he found a resurgent and emboldened Gandra, who declared that he was, in fact, the legitimate governor. Putting together a strong fighting force, augmented by a host of Amerindian allies, the centralist governor was able to drive Urea from Sonora. However, the back half of 1838 would be spent in running battles against Urea's supporters, and it wouldn't be until November 20th that a decisive battle would prove once and for all that Gandra was here to stay. I hope you've been paying attention to how Mexican politics work, because then you won't be surprised when I say, Urea will be back. This was just the opening salvo in a years-long conflict between the two men. But we're going to touch more on that next week. With his position now secure, Gandra also decided it was time to move the capital out of Arispe. Now, I said a few episodes ago that this move was due to a desire to move farther away from the raiding Apaches. But after doing some further reading, this can also be seen as a political move by Gandra to be closer to his allies and farther from Urea's supporters. So the capital moved to Ures on the Sonora River. Arispe, which had been the head of Sonora for more than 50 years, was left behind. It's important to remember that the Sonoran Revolt did not happen in a vacuum. At the same time, there were other uprisings in both California and New Mexico. California Alta was also incensed by the centralist authoritarian bent of the Constitution of 1836 and quickly went into revolt. Mexico City couldn't spare troops for California like it had for Texas, but sent a strongly centralist governor to get things in order. Nobody seemed to like this guy. Aside from being the vassal of a political order they detested, he apparently wasn't that likable personally. He landed at Santa Barbara in mid-April, but was sent packing by the rebellious citizens in July. Funny enough, it's probably a good thing the central government couldn't send troops, which would have galvanized resentment. Instead, diplomacy prevailed, and one of the leaders of the rebellion actually wound up as governor of California. It's actually a political feat that's unique in this period. In New Mexico, the poorer classes rose up in revolt on August 1, 1837. On the surface, it was the same cry for greater regional autonomy, but unlike California and Sonora, the rebels were not aristocrats or generals. 
On the whole, the rebels were from the lower classes whose economic fortunes were always precarious at best, and the seven plagues of 1836 were just the straw that broke the camel's back. This revolt managed to take Santa Fe and execute the governor. However, counter-rebellions will eventually put down this revolt, and by January 1838, the leaders in New Mexico would once again proclaim their allegiance to the government in Mexico City. Though these revolts all were eventually extinguished, they did have one lasting consequence. As Officer puts it, quote, With politics taking over, hostile Apaches encountered less and less resistance from presidial forces. End quote. And it wasn't like those forces were in that great of shape to begin with. The Sonoran treasury was a joke, and what actual money might have been out there was sapped by all the political infighting. The barracks revolts we talked about last week were the results of no pay or provisions making it to the common soldier. This is where you really get those stories about the troops selling their guns and equipment just to be able to feed themselves and their families. And the practice was so common that officials had to warn citizens in 1835 and again in 1837 about harsh penalties should anyone be found making such a purchase. A soldier's clothing was as simple as it gets. During the hot summer months, men wore as little as the natives. Women would wear blouses and long skirts made from unbleached cotton with maybe a shawl or a scarf. Their food was basic with panole, or ground-up mesquite beans, being common. When they could get them, prickly pear, both the pads and the fruit, were highly sought after. It's likely that delicacies such as tropical fruit, chocolate, and even coffee were entirely absent from Tucson. Of course, this being a frontier town, liquor was still everywhere. The most common type being mezcal, being distilled from agave plants. But when they could get it, they also turned corn into tesquino. And adapting to their environment, they took to so-called papago wine, which was made from the juice of the saguaro fruit. Then there was the omnipresent fear of Apache attacks, which caused more people to jam themselves inside the protective walls of Tucson. Space, that should be noted, they had to share with livestock, which could not be left outside of the walls. Houses inside the Presidio were made of adobe and generally one room. The doors were made out of saguaro ribs, and a few homes had the luxury of windows. Many were actually built right up next to the walls of the Presidio itself and the roofs of these houses formed the parapets that soldiers would use when defending the Presidio from raiders. Anyone leaving the Presidio had to be escorted by troops for their own safety. That included women who went down to the local canals to wash clothes, or men heading to local ranches to obtain beef or lamb for food. Farming was again happening at Trace Alamos along the San Pedro River at this time. However, anyone working in these fields had to be accompanied by Presidio troops who watched over them while they labored. It's during this era also that we find more land grants being abandoned. Some managed to still visit their ranch holdings, but were limited in what they could do. The number of wild bulls the Americans would find in the area is a testament that even some basic ranching chores, such as castrating young male animals, was not being done. It's also during these turbulent years that Tucson would say goodbye to its last resident priest during the Mexican era. 
Father Antonio Gonzalez would leave the Old Pueblo in late 1837, heading toward another assignment. He would kind of return to Arizona in the early 1840s, serving some of their needs while operating out of San Ignacio down in Sonora. Father Rafael Diaz, who I mentioned in episode 15, will be riding a circuit between San Ignacio and Tucson, but his visits were infrequent, and many times families would have to make the journey south to have their children baptized. Of course, it would be dereliction of duty if I didn't mention that, through this all, the struggle against the Apache continued. During this time, both Sonora and Chihuahua started paying bounties for Apache scalps, with one source reporting them shelling out the equivalent of $100 for the scalp of a man, $50 for that of a woman, and $25 for a child. Sonora also sweetened the deal by promising scalp hunters half the booty they captured from hostile tribes. A prominent scalp hunter was American James Kirker, who became infamous and rich in his own right for collecting Apache scalps. At one point, the governorship changed hands in Chihuahua, and the new head of the department tried a different, less bloody strategy of turning the Apaches against each other. However, just a couple years later, Chihuahua would be back in business with Kirker, who would go on to greater levels of infamy. All in all, this was a recipe for disaster. And disaster followed. Now, I found three different versions about what is about to be known as the Johnson Affair, so bear with me as I try to piece together a coherent narrative. In March 1837, Apaches raided the small settlement of Nuria in Sonora that sits just west of the Sonoran-Chihuahuan state line today. In nearby Moctezuma, there lived an American merchant named John Johnson, who had married a Mexican woman and lived there for nearly a decade. Hearing about the raid, he put together a force of 17 other Americans and five Mexican mule drivers to chase them down. His motivations for doing so are a little murky. He could have wanted to simply avenge the raid. He might have been trying to get some of that scalp bounty. Or he might have wanted to get his hands on some of the Apache's mules, which were stolen from Mexicans anyway. Johnson apparently had a commission already from Governor Escalante in Sonora to track down any hostiles and get his cut of the booty. So, with his hunting party, he set out after the raiding party that had struck Noria. Eventually, the group arrived at Janos, where the commander tried unsuccessfully to talk them out of continuing. When that failed, he gifted them a small cannon or swivel gun. Hoping to look like just another American trader, Johnson and his company set out again, this time heading toward New Mexico. On April 20, 1837, they encountered the band of Chief Juan José Compa, the same who had signed the peace treaty with the Chihuahuans two years earlier. A litany of broken expectations on both sides had led Compa to begin more raiding and back and forth with the Mexicans. Compa, who I said at the beginning was literate, was in the habit of robbing mail trains to be able to find out what his Mexican neighbors slash enemies were planning. Pretending to be a merchant, Johnson offered to trade goods for safe passage to Santa Rita de Cobre in New Mexico. As part of this, the Apaches turned over Lartura Garcia, a girl they had seized during a raid. Garcia is supposed to have told Johnson that Compa and his men were planning on turning on the train and simply taking anything they wanted. During a later inquiry, Garcia would give conflicting testimony, 
even saying at one point that she didn't understand the Apache language, so this last detail may not be fact at all. Either way, Johnson had no intention of being set upon by these wily Apaches. On April 22nd, he invited the Apaches to either help themselves to some goods or to come and trade for items. One source says the Apaches were mounted, meaning they had either just arrived or were on their way. Another says that Johnson had invited them to a feast and was bidding them to come and eat. However it happened, once they had gathered, Johnson opened fire. His men let loose with the cannon-slash-swivel gun gifted to them at Hanos. Early state historian Thomas Farish reports it as being a howitzer that was concealed under sacks of flour or other goods. He even adds the flourish that Johnson lit the weapon with the end of his cigarette. It appears it had been loaded with metal scraps to ensure that a wide spray of shrapnel would hit all the Apaches. Whoever managed to escape were then picked off by Johnson's waiting men. When all was said and done, 20 Apaches, including Compa and his brother, were dead on the ground. Johnson returned to Mexico, scalps in hand, and submitted an embellished claim that he and his men had fought off a war party of 80 Apache. The whole use of a cannon was conveniently left off his report. The scalping policy in general, and the Johnson affair in particular, would create in the Apaches a hatred that would last for generations. The immediate aftereffects were thoroughly predictable. Out for revenge, Cherokawan Apaches wiped out the Kemp Party, a group of 22 trappers along the Gila. Soon after, they struck a wagon train bound for El Paso en route to Santa Fe, massacring the 12 men accompanying it. That fall, they struck all over Chihuahua, attacking Hanos itself in October and killing or kidnapping a number of men, women, and children. As state historian James Officer puts it, quote, From this time on, it would be uncompromising warfare between the two groups. End quote. But we're going to leave things here for now, as this latest atrocity is as good a place as any to cut off our narrative for this week. But join me next week as we round out some of the last years of Mexican rule and watch as the spiral of collapse grows even tighter. But one bit of housekeeping before I let you go for the week. You may have noticed up front that I did a little tweaking to our intro music. I've been wanting to separate the introduction to each episode from the main body for some time now, and I struck on this as a good idea of how to do it. However, I would love to hear your thoughts if you preferred it the old way, the new way, or have any other suggestions. You can find contact info for me at the podcast website, azhistorypodcast.com, or you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at azhistorypod. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.